0: What should I do, how should I live, and whom should I become? We need the guidance of both ancient wisdom and modern science to get the balance right. What is the meaning of life? Why do some people find meaning, purpose and fulfillment in life, but others do not? Where does happiness come from? For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. If passion drives, let reason hold the reins. Desire and reason are pulling in different directions. Feelings of guilt, lust, or fear were often stronger than reasoning. Freud said that the mind is divided into three parts the ego, the conscious, rational self, the superego, the conscience, a sometimes too rigid commitment to the rules of society, and the id, the desire for pleasure lots of it, sooner rather than later. Human thinking depends on metaphor. The driver, the ego, struggles frantically to control a hungry, lustful, and disobedient horse, the id, while the driver's father, the superego, sits in the back seat lecturing the driver on what he is doing wrong. For Freud, the goal of psychoanalysis was to escape this pitiful state by strengthening the ego, thus giving it more control over the id and more independence from the superego. The older metaphors about controlling animals work beautifully. Throughout recorded history, people have lived with and tried to control animals and these animals made their way into ancient metaphors. Buddha, for example, compared the mind to a wild elephant. In days gone by, this mind of mine used to stray wherever selfish desire or lust or pleasure would lead it. Today, this mind does not stray and is under the harmony of control, even as a wild elephant is controlled by the trainer. Plato used a similar metaphor, in which the self, or soul, is a chariot and the calm, rational part of the mind holds the reins. Plato's charioteer had to control two horses. The horse that is on the right, or nobler side, is upright in frame and well-jointed, with a high neck and a regal nose. He is a lover of honor, with modesty and self-control. Companion to true glory, he needs no whip and is guided by verbal commands alone. The other horse is a crooked, great jumble of limbs, companion to wild boasts and indecency. He is shaggy around the ears, deaf as a post, and just barely yields to horsewhip and goad combined. It's no accident that we find the carnal pleasure so rewarding. Our brains, like rat brains, are wired so that food and sex give us little bursts of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that is the brain's way of making us enjoy the activities that are good for the survival of our genes. Plato's bad horse plays an important role in pulling us toward these things, which helped our ancestors survive and succeed in becoming our ancestors. The controlled system allows people to think about long-term goals and thereby escape the tyranny of the here and now, the automatic triggering of temptation by the sight of tempting objects. People can imagine alternatives that are not visually present. They can weigh long-term health risks against present pleasures, and they can learn in conversation about which choices will bring success and prestige. The automatic system has its finger on the dopamine release button. The controlled system, in contrast, is better seen as an advisor. It's a rider placed on the elephant's back to help the elephant make better choices. Once you understand the power of stimulus control, you can use it to your advantage by changing the stimuli in your environment and avoiding undesirable ones. Or, if that's not possible, by filling your consciousness with thoughts about their less tempting aspects. Buddhism, for example, in an effort to break people's carnal attachment to their own and others' flesh, develop methods of meditating on decaying corpses. By choosing to stare at something that revolts the automatic system, the writer can begin to change what the elephant will want in the future. The rider can see farther into the future, and the writer can learn valuable information by talking to other riders. The rider is an advisor or servant, not a king, president, or charioteer with a firm grip on the reins. It is conscious, controlled thought. The elephant, in contrast, is everything else. The elephant includes the gut feelings, visceral reactions, emotions, and intuitions that comprise much of the automatic system. The elephant and rider each have their own intelligence, and when they work together well, they enable the unique brilliance of human beings. To understand most important ideas in psychology, you need to understand how the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. We assume that there is one person in each body, but in some ways we are each more like a committee whose members have been thrown together to do a job, but who often find themselves working at cross-purposes. Human rationality depends critically on sophisticated emotionality. It is only because our emotional brains work so well that our reasoning can work at all. Reason and emotion must both work together to create intelligent behavior. The moment one stops trying to suppress a thought, the thought comes flooding in and becomes even harder to banish. When controlled processing tries to influence thought, don't think about a white bear. It sets up an explicit goal, and whenever one pursues a goal, a part of the mind automatically monitors progress so that it can order corrections or know when success has been achieved. When that goal is an action in the world, such as arriving at the airport on time, this feedback system works well. But when the goal is mental, it backfires. Automatic processes continually check. Am I not thinking about a white bear? As the act of monitoring for the absence of the thought introduces the thought, the person must try even harder to divert consciousness automatic and controlled processes end up working at cross purposes, firing each other up to ever greater exertions. But because controlled processes tire quickly, eventually the inexhaustible automatic processes run unopposed, conjuring up herds of white bears. Thus the attempt to remove an unpleasant thought can guarantee it a place on your frequent playlist of mental ruminations. We sometimes fall into the view that we are fighting with our unconscious, our id, our animal self. But really, we are the whole thing. We are the rider and we are the elephant. Both have their strengths and special skills. Marcus Aurelius wrote, The whole universe is change and life itself is but what you deem it. Buddha taught what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow our life is the creation of our mind events in the world affect us only through our interpretations of them so if we can control our interpretations we can control our world There is no reality, only perception. The art of pop psychology is to develop a method, beyond lecturing and hectoring, that guides people to that realization. Self-help books and seminars sometimes seem to consist of little more than lecturing and hectoring people until they understand this idea and its implications for their lives. To take something philosophically means to accept a great misfortune without weeping or even suffering. We use this term in part because of the calmness, self-control, and courage that three ancient philosophers, Socrates, Seneca, and Boethius, showed while they awaited their executions. But in the consolation of philosophy, which Boethius wrote while in prison, he confessed that at first he was anything but philosophical. He wept and wrote poems about weeping. He cursed injustice and old age and the goddess of fortune who had blessed him and then abandoned him. Then one night, While Boethius is wallowing in his wretchedness, the majestic apparition of Lady Philosophy visits him and proceeds to chide him for his unphilosophical behavior. Lady Philosophy then guides Boethius through reinterpretations that foreshadow modern cognitive therapy. She begins by asking Boethius to think about his relationship with the goddess of fortune. Philosophy reminds Boethius that fortune is fickle, coming and going as she pleases. Boethius took fortune as his mistress, fully aware of her ways, and she stayed with him for a long time. What right has he now to demand that she be chained to his side? Lady Philosophy presents fortune's defense. Why should I alone be deprived of my rights? The heavens are permitted to grant bright days, then blot them out with dark nights. The year may decorate the face of the earth with flowers and fruits, then make it barren again with clouds and frost. The sea is allowed to invite the sailor with fair weather, then terrify him with storms. Shall I then permit man's insatiable cupidity to tie me down to a sameness that is alien to my habits? Lady philosophy reframes change as normal and as the right of fortune. The whole universe is changed, Aurelius had said, Boethius was fortunate, now he is not. That is no cause for anger, rather he should be grateful that he enjoyed fortune for so long and he should be calm now that she has left him. No man can ever be secure until he has been forsaken by fortune. Lady Philosophy tries several other reframing tactics. She points out that his wife, sons, and father are each dearer to him than his own life, and all four still live. She helps him see that adverse fortune is more beneficial than good fortune. The latter only makes men greedy for more, but adversity makes them strong. and she draws Boethius's imagination far up into the heavens so that he can look down on the earth and see it as a tiny speck on which even tinier people play out their comical and ultimately insignificant ambitions. She gets him to admit that riches and fame bring anxiety and avarice, not peace and happiness. After being shown these new perspectives and having his old assumptions challenged, Boethius is finally prepared to absorb the greatest lesson of all. The lesson Buddha and Aurelius had taught centuries earlier. Nothing is miserable unless you think it so. And on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you are content with it. When he takes this lesson to heart, Boethius frees himself from his mental prison. He regains his composure, writes a book that has comforted people for centuries and faces his death with dignity. Epiphanies can be life-altering, but most fade in days or weeks. The rider can't just decide to change and then order the elephant to go along with the program. Lasting change can come only by retraining the elephant, and that's hard to do. When pop psychology programs are successful in helping people, which they sometimes are, they succeed not because of the initial moment of insight, but because they find ways to alter people's behavior over the following months. They keep people involved with the program long enough to retrain the elephant. When pleasure or pain comes to them, the wise feel above pleasure and pain. Do not seek to have events happen as you want them to, but instead, want them to happen as they do happen, and your life will go well. Happiness comes from within and it cannot be found by making the world conform to your desires. Our life is the creation of our mind. Thinking makes it so.